daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, we will first of all take a look at China's first foreign relations law. A U.S. NGO says China is on course to hit the country's wind and solar-powered target five years ahead of time. We will also take a look at how rumors about Xinjiang are causing troubles for a group of American fashion designers and influencers. And we will finally explore the anger and unrest in the city of Paris after police officers killed a teenager in traffic stop. To listen to this episode again, or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching "World Today." China has passed a foreign relations law in order to better safeguard the country's national security and development interests. In a People's Daily's editorial, senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi describes this law as a key step to improve the rule of law system in China's foreign affairs. This law is reiterating that China is committed to high standards, opening up, protecting inbound foreign investment, and encouraging external economic cooperation. The law requires foreign nationals and organizations in China not to endanger the country's national security, harm the country's public interests, or disrupt social order. The law calls on government agencies to strengthen their interdepartmental coordination and cooperation to enforce retaliatory measures against actions that are aimed at undermining China's sovereignty, security, and development interests. The law will take effect on July the first. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Victor Gao, chair professor with Suzhou University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So, first of all, from a, a sort of a realistic perspective as well as a legal perspective, Professor Gao, why does China need a foreign relations law at the moment? Well, first of all, ever since. Uh, 1949, foreign policies, foreign affairs, and foreign relations have always been a very important part of the Chinese government. However, up to the enactment of the Foreign Relations Act or the law, the、uh, foreign、uh, policy practices are mostly done by administrative、uh, measures. That is done by the foreign ministry itself. And whenever the foreign ministry need to coordinate with other government entities or other ministries, etc., they also interact with each other. Not because of the Foreign、uh, Relations Act or law itself, but because of rules and regulations, for example, and practices. Therefore, I would say China has reached a stage where. Foreign relations have become more important. It is absolutely necessary to bring in higher standardization and uniformity, and also predictability in terms of implementing these clauses and provisions in the foreign relations law, because this is the right thing to do, especially when the foreign ministry in China need to coordinate with other. Uh, central government agencies or local governments, and also interact with foreign and domestic entities or even individuals, for example, in terms of 
whether such law has been violated, how to enforce the law, and what will be the punishment for the violations if they are convicted. Therefore, it is highly important, very necessary, and very timely for China to have such a newly enacted foreign uh, relations law to guide the uh, practice and theory of foreign relations going forward. Mm, indeed. So, indeed, this is a very important area: diplomacy and foreign policy for every country, arguably. And some people say、uh, this new law we are talking about is actually an umbrella law that embraces China's existing practices in foreign policy and foreign affairs into a legal document. Now, there is one particular clause in this law that is that is drawing a lot of、uh, attention. Uh, regarding this clause, saying that China has the right to retaliate against the actions that undermine China's、uh, sovereignty, security, and development interests. So, I guess in real practice, Professor Gao, we are mostly talking about, you know, put it simply, U.S. sanctions, tariffs, and export controls targeting China or Chinese、uh, businesses.、Uh, China has, in recent years. You know, as a retaliation, sanctioned some of the U.S. companies like Lockheed Martin and some individuals like former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo.、Uh, but、uh, to put it into a bigger picture, Professor, do you think this law we are talking about here will enable China to respond to、um, foreign hostility, especially hostile U.S. actions against China, in a more meaningful way? Absolutely, I think、uh, what this law uh, uh, will bring about is, as I said, predictability, standardization, and uh, uh, very much ease of enforcement and、uh, uniformity of the practices.、Uh, this is mainly because prior to the enactment of this law, while China Uh, had already、uh, enforced the sanctions against、uh, foreign institutions or individuals because of their violation of China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and legitimate national interest. I would say it had been done more on a case-by-case basis,、mm. without the、uh, guiding principle of this overall foreign、uh, relations law, and it also lacked. Predictability and standardization, and uh, uh, therefore, with the enactment of this particular law,、uh, all these uh, defects or uh, uh, insufficiencies will be made up for, and it will be more effective and more predictable, and on a much more standardized basis、uh, to deal with、uh, measures or countermeasures against such violations of China's. Sovereignty and territorial integrity and legitimate interest by foreign government or foreign entities going forward.、Hmm. Now, in the meantime,、uh, another law we are talking, another clause in this law we are talking about is really this clause that that requires foreign nationals and organizations. Based in China, not to endanger China's national security, public interests, as well as social and public order. Now, Professor Gao, some foreign experts, some foreign expats or experts as well, living in China might have might have some concern. They might wonder whether. The introduction of this legislation and the law is is ever going to have an impact on their, say, daily life, 
in China. What do you have to say to people who might have this concern? Well, first of all, for those、uh, foreign、uh, nationals or expats who live and work in China, I would say、uh, this、uh, law, in particular, especially this uh, clause, uh, does not、uh, target、uh, these foreign nationals unless they are found guilty. Of violations of China's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and legitimate national interest. So the threshold for triggering this particular clause is actually very high. And、mm-hmm. even before the enactment of this law,、uh, China could already、uh, utilize other laws and other provisions in other existing laws to、uh, bring justice to those foreign nationals who work or live in China if they violate. China sovereignty, territorial integrity, and legitimate national interest. But with the enactment of this particular law, especially this particular clause, again I would say it creates a higher level of predictability. Now, first of all, on the government side, if they have reason to believe there is a violation of China sovereignty, territorial integrity, and legitimate interest, then they need to proceed as prescribed by this law. And this、mm. particular clause. Now, for the foreign nationals, it actually creates higher level of predictability too, because they will know what will be the consequences if they violate the sovereignty and territorial integrity and legitimate national interests of China. And I hope this will really make them more aware of the absolute need of respecting China's laws and regulations. And respecting China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, and will refrain from doing anything which may infringe upon or violate China's national legitimate interest. So it creates a higher level of predictability and higher level of comfort for both the government on the one hand, as well as foreign nationals on the other.、Mm. Other hand. Yeah, so that's the really that's really the true spirit of、uh, rule of law. That's for sure. Now, in the case of the United States of America, Professor Gao, you know better than I do because over the years we really have seen many cases where the U.S. government,、um, out of a geopolitical intention or motive,、uh, bullied、um, other countries, including China as well. By wielding its domestic laws and legislations as a weapon, right? So, do you think、um, China will do the same thing as China becomes a global power as well? No, I don't think so. China, as a country, does not support the extraterritoriality of a country's domestic law to a foreign context. China actually has been a major victim. Of such extraterritorial、uh, application of the domestic laws, some countries to、uh, Chinese targets, for example, Chinese companies or government entities, etc. Therefore, we follow the principle of "Don't do unto others what you don't want others do unto you."、Mm. So, I don't think China wants to practice extraterritoriality, and China will not、uh, enforce its domestic law against. Foreigners, foreign entities, foreign government entities—if they are not within China's jurisdiction to start with—and I think this will be actually better because foreign entities, including government, 
institutions, companies, individuals, if they are not within the jurisdiction of China, they should have no worry about triggering disciplinary measures against them. And this will also help them to develop a higher level of sensitivity and discipline when they deal with major issues involving China's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and the national interest, because the rule of the law is that you are not going to violate China's sovereignty and territorial integrity and its international interest without triggering consequences. And that has a major context to it. That is, you need to be within the jurisdiction of China. Rather Mm -hmm. than, for example, you are completely beyond the reach of the Chinese law, you are in a foreign jurisdiction, and China wants to apply these laws through an extraterritoriality to people within the jurisdictions of another country. Mm. Thank you very much for putting this very important issue into perspective. That was Dr. Victor Gao, Chair Professor with Suzhou University. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Patriotism, simply put, is the feeling of love for or devotion to one's country. Isn't it an innate human sentiment? Why does it have to be promoted? As China molds its first patriotic education law, who's most likely to violate the law once it's in place? Find the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge, wherever you get your podcast, and right here on CGTN Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. A senior United Nations official has expressed his hope that the global South can benefit from borrowing China's experiences in digital financial inclusion. Deputy Executive Secretary of the UN Capital Development Fund Zavia Michon made these remarks while attending the summer Davo- while attending the summer Davos Forum in the northern Chinese city of Tianjin. Zavia said that China has a wealthy knowledge and expertise in providing underserved users with digital access to formal financial services, which can be replicated through various mechanisms like self-self cooperation or direct engagement with the private sector. He has added that the enthusiasm, capital, and innovation on the part of Chinese enterprises have a potential to bring huge benefits to both developing and developed economies. In a conversation with my colleague Xu Yawen, Mashan also shared his observation that foreign investors and entrepreneurs are bullish about the Chinese economy despite some temporary headwinds. Let's take a listen. Mr. Michelle, thank you so much for your time today. Could you briefly tell us about your organization, the UN Capital Development Fund? How is this connecting capital to emerging and frontier markets? Well, first of all, thank you, Yawen, for having me. And uh, again, I'm glad to be in China, which I'm discovering for the second time. And uh, of course, being here at the World Economic Forum. To answer to your question, so the UNCDF, as it has in its name, has capital embedded and basically we are hybrid between a development entity and a development bank. And by this, I mean that we seed uh, enterprises in developing economies with specific focus on the least developed economies, so where capital is very shy. And in our toolkit, we have loans, guarantees, we have targeted uh, grants that allows us to basically take um, companies that today are not meeting commercial terms, 
they're not ready to get the loan from a bank, they're not still at that stage and move forward in terms of uh, capital, let's say, um, provision in one way or the other, mm -hmm. to seed them and take them to the next level. So for us, we connect directly with companies that we do believe, according to our term, have a development impact, whether it's job creation, contribution to um, fiscal contribution to their communities, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. And the product that they're doing are also contributing to the communities. And then we look at the viability of that investment. So we have two teams, one that works on the development part and another mm -hmm. one that basically looks at the viability of the investment and trying to price it, put, uh, analyzes the risk, does a due diligence on the company. Mm -hmm. And then we accompany those companies, hoping them then to connect them with other forms of capital. Pretty much you're uh, playing a role as a mediator to help those companies that they need to get capital to help them grow and develop, especially in emerging markets and developing countries, right? Yeah. And so, and, and, and really this is the focus. We're taking uh, an angle that was, it's a segment that is being called the missing middle, that these are companies that are either too big to get microfinance or too small to get commercial terms. Mm. And they have great ideas. This is where you have young people. Where do you have women entrepreneurs? This is where you have job creation. And it's basically what we have discussed here during the web is the role of SMEs. They're mm. in that struggle that they're not big enough, uh, but too, too, too small, to too get small for others. And yeah. so they need an actor that supports them. And they're not that many because as an investor, what you want is a mature company with a risk that is limited. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to get those that meet commercial terms. We're there to push them to that level so that basically they grow. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a, let's say, risk tolerance, which is different from other partners because we're not a bank per se. We're a development entity first. Yeah. And so that's where we, we come in. So let me ask you this. You're here attending the forum. And... Yeah. Uh, after speaking to numbers of entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. business leaders, investors, so what kinds of projects or uh, industries or fields that investors, they are in favor of investing after the pandemic? So, I mean, uh, the, 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 the word that you hear here is artificial intelligence. It's coming everywhere. You just blend it in, in whatever application. I think that's tech uh, and, and really with an emphasis on artificial intelligence is... is is what I hear, this is what is being proposed. A lot of young entrepreneurs that are seeing a development challenge and they use technology to respond to it. And this is exactly what we want to do. And they're seeking capital. So this is exactly where we want to embrace them and support them like many others that are here. There's a lot of creativity here at the WEF, like me in many other places. And, and we want to focus on, on young uh, entrepreneurs, startups, we, we even greenfield companies companies that don't have a presence in the country, but we know that that product, that service is necessary. Mm -hmm. So we help them landing into that market. And so this is things that we can do. And we believe that it has a great impact. Mm. And also during the forum, we hear the word confidence a lot. So what are your observations on investors, their investment plans and their investment confidence on mm. the Chinese market? So let me start with the confidence and then we'll move to the Chinese market. Sure. So as you know, I'm here because we have... Uh, been invited to present a web platform that we're launching in September. We have already piloted in two countries, namely Uganda and, uh, and Senegal, and I thank them for their support at the highest level, which tries to connect exactly that, capital with entrepreneurship and innovation. We know that entrepreneurs, you know, to, to get to providers of capital, you need to structure your thinking, you need to structure your messaging. It's not just saying, you know, I'm, I have a project, finance me. So there's a journey behind it. So the, our platform helps taking it through the journey to structure the pitch, to structure the video, presenting them, to analyze the data. And that's an element, I think information is at the basis of confidence. What we're trying to do is 
generate information on both sides so that basically both sides start knowing each other, mm -hmm. an entrepreneur seeking an investor or an investor seeking an entrepreneur and connect via the web match and them. start and match them. So yeah. this is the basic, there's much more to it, of course, yeah. but uh, like many others, we now, with the revolution with AI and with ChatGPT, we have already adopted certain uh, certain approaches where we embed AI in addition to algorithms that we have deployed. Mm -hmm. So with China, I think they are, from my perspective, China has a lot to offer to the developing world. So we know that Chinese private expression are looking for pipeline in those economies. Mm -hmm. And they're looking for projects. I think that platform can offer that. We know also on the other side that there are Chinese entrepreneurs that are looking for opportunities and also to diversify their, let's say, their fiscal yes. provision yeah. and, and attract also, connect to global markets. So we connect also that latitude. So I think it's a win-win. And I would like to emphasize, this is a public good. So by nature, it's a UN entity that is seeding this initiative, then it's managing it, and it's for free. So I think it's the best of both worlds. What we want is really create a marketplace where basically both sides meet and hopefully uh, reduce that gap. And that's our intent. Did you hear from foreign investors like about their confidence, investment confidence here on the Chinese market? So I didn't go as far on that, but uh, having seen a little bit uh, over the days that I've been here, I think there's a sentiment of uh, being very, I would say, bullish about the Chinese economy, the opportunities, uh, the presentations that were made on, on technology. The few, there was a presentation just here mm -hmm. on the future of AI. You see that there are companies that are leading the way, uh, that are paving, let's say, uh, with innovation. And I think there's much more than can be done. So from my side, also, there's a lot that China can share from its expertise, its innovation to the rest of the world. And that's also what is interesting on, on from my side. It trickles down to developing an economies and in the concept that I heard of, uh, it was sharing prosperity that was presented during the um, Belt and Road Initiative. I think what we're trying to do is finding win-wins, sharing prosperity, and I'm looking also at the angle of developed economies that can benefit so much from the enthusiasm, the capital, the innovation of, our, of Chinese enterprises. So mm -hmm. we will try to do as much as we get to broker that relationship. Another thing is, uh, in recent years, we have noticed that uh, there are emergence of many new financial service models in China, mm -hmm. especially digital financial inclusion. It has made significant progress. So I'd like to hear about your observation on that part. So let me start with two things. First of all, my experience here, I took the cab to come to, to this conference about three times, and I wanted to pay with cash. And they looked at me with, with strange eyes, not because they didn't, I didn't speak the language, but basically everything is paid by WeChat. And you see how advanced the adoption of technology for payments is, is in China. And there's, there's so much that we can learn from, from the WeChat experience. Second of all, I'm doing, trying to transport also in the economies where I work. I was in Burkina Faso not so long ago. Basically, it, it goes beyond the technology. It's, it's, it's about usage. It's understanding the tools. So we, we worked on a microfinance product for the youth. And they understood the concept of saving, generating interest, interest generating a relationship with a financial institution that will entrust them to the next level. That means that it's a loan. That loan goes to a productive activity. Then there's a covering of your activity with, with insurance. You know, on and on and on. So I'm just saying the comprehension of the financial, let's say, basic instruments. Use technology on that, which allows to have proximity to the client. The client having the service, I think it's a win-win. And we see, we from our side, we finance the fintech sector, the insurtech sector, because we help them out, develop tools that reach out 
to the community that are left behind, and mm -hmm. that's a factor of financial inclusion. So we we all for it, and we know that China has so much to offer so that can be replicated by a South-South mechanism, by a naturally by a government or directly with the private sector. And you know, we open to any conversation that we might have. Actually, just to stop. Uh, we have started collaborating with two Chinese entrepreneurs. It's a it's a first for us mm -hmm. uh, on food system finance, and we, of course we we hope that there will be much more because there's much more that we can learn and of course share with the rest of the world. Mr. Zavia Mashang, Deputy Executive Secretary of the UN Capital Development Fund, talking to my colleague Xu Yawen. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. A new report by a San Francisco-based NGO has found that China is shoring up its position as the world leader in energy in renewable power. Global Energy Monitor now expects China to double its capacity and produce 1,200 gigawatts of energy through wind and solar power by 2025, reaching its 2030 goal five years ahead of time. As of this year's first quarter, China's utility-scale solar capacity had reached 228 gigawatts, more than the combined capacity on the parts of the rest of the world. This report is attributing China's progress in expanding non-fossil energy sources to a range of government policies, including generous subsidies to developers. As well as regulatory measures to drive provincial authorities, as well as power generators. Joining us now on the line is Ma Jun, director of the Institute of Public and Environment Affairs, a Beijing-based NGO. 
Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Mr. Ma,、um, what do you make of this particular projection in this particular report that China is on course to hit its、uh, wind and solar power target set for the year 2030, five years ahead of time? Yeah, thank you.、Uh, we, we've,、uh, we're also tracking the,、uh, this performance.、Uh, in general, I agree with the projection. You know, we've been working. With Chinese Academy of、uh, of Science to develop a, a, a regional carbon peak and neutrality index. So province by province, when we add all this、uh, target setting and also uh, the, uh, the 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 annual delivery of、uh, of their uh, solar uh, solar power development,、uh, we can see that、uh, China's on track to achieve the twenty、uh, thirty target. Uh, announced by President Xi, you know、mm-hmm. uh, that target is that 1,200 gigawatts of uh, uh, solar and wind. So、uh, we we trust that China is on its track to achieve this target around 2025.、Mm. Uh, that part is、uh, correct. Okay. Now, with regard to the the government policies that this particular NGO's report has attributed to, especially the part regarding the subsidy from the government, I mean, the United States and the European Union authorities are also doing something similar. They are also rolling out massive subsidies in this particular area, even to the point that this issue has become a Uh, a sort of a diplomatic dispute or tussle between Washington and Brussels. So, with that in mind, why do you think, at least according to this report, it is、uh, still China that is taking the lead in terms of expanding renewable energy sources at the moment? You're right. It's not just China, but globally, you know, the other regions are also、uh, providing subsidies、uh, for the. Uh, production of、uh, and installation of、uh, renewable energy,、uh, but in China, you know, the early days, uh, we uh, we did uh, provide um, substantial uh, subsidy uh, to facilitate the development uh, of renewable uh, production and installation. But then, when the、uh, solar and wind become more com- market competitive, competitive in the market, uh, uh, the already、uh, the subsidy have been. Uh, abolished.、Um, uh, still, you know, we can see that uh, uh, China's uh, development of、uh, of renewable energy, particularly on the solar and wind side, have not been very much affected. I think it's very much because you know of、uh, of the entrepreneurship of Chinese corporation.、Mm. This this market is wide open for you know、uh, free competition. And the Chinese um, uh, uh, entrepreneurs、uh, who really excel, I mean,、uh, demonstrate that they are not just、uh, very good at uh, uh, scale up the manufacturing、uh, mm. with the high quality and low cost. But in the meantime, they really put a lot of money behind,、uh, you know,、uh, R and D, you know, research and, and a lot of research. So. Uh, so uh, they have achieved a lot of innovative, uh, 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 built a lot of innovative capacity on that. They're the global leaders in the,、uh, particularly the solar、uh, technology, solar power technology. On the、mm-hmm. wind side, is also quickly catching up. 
Yeah, so really we're talking about the power of expertise and knowledge, that's for sure. Now, in the meantime, Mr. Majin, this particular report has also uh, listed a few challenges facing China's um, green transition. For example, in recent years, there have been cases where record number or, or record degree of heat waves and drought crippled some hydropower stations, causing power crunches in some particular regions. Last year, it was uh, in the southwestern region of Sichuan and Chongqing, etc. Now, and in the meantime, according to the report, an outdated electricity grid, as well as the inflexibility in terms of transferring those energy between regions, also adds to the uncertainties. So what could be the solutions to these um, challenges? Yes, uh, I think these are uh, real challenges, uh, particularly when we try to, when the um, renewable energy have developed at such unprecedented speed. You know, this in the first quarter of, uh, of this year, uh, China's solar power uh, grow by uh, more than 150%. So when you try to uh, integrate so much renewable into the uh, power grid, the intermittent nature of uh, uh, of the renewables uh, uh, will have created uh, uh, challenges. Uh, um, you know, so of course, if we can build uh, equally, you know, as much as uh, energy storage capacity, that can help solve the problem. But uh, but the um, uh, uh, but it will take a longer time for the energy storage capacity to be boosted uh, to the level that can uh, uh, absorb uh, easily, you know, uh, absorb all this renewable. So with that, you know, we also in the meantime need to uh, transform our outdated uh, power grid uh, to make it more uh, flexible. And in the meantime, try to make sure that we can uh, build higher transferring capacity mm. uh, between different power grids. Uh, you know, last winter, uh, last, sorry, last summer, when the uh, southwestern power grid in China suffered from this uh, unprecedented uh, heat wave and drought during the monsoon season, uh, mm. which, uh, which affected the, the, the hydropower in a very big way. We actually have some extra capacity in the neighboring northwestern power grid, but, but there's no, uh, n- no channels yeah. to transfer. Uh, yeah. that, that. So, so I think that part, uh, we definitely need to do more to, uh, to upgrade and transform our power grid. Mm, indeed. Um, basically, last week there was this summit called a Summit for a New Global Financial Pact held in the city of Paris. And the one focus of that meeting was really to try to address this issue regarding the shortfall in green finance, especially the shortfall faced, faced by many low-income countries. So I guess uh, apart from uh, providing expertise and knowledge in, in terms of uh, renewable energy development. China could also play a very vital role in terms of promoting global green finance as well. But thank you very much. That was Mr. Ma Jun.
director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, a Beijing-based non-government organization. Thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. A group of American fashion influencers and designers have received online backlash after visiting a Chinese model factory owned by internet shopping site Xi'an. Xi'an was founded in China's Guangzhou and is now based in Singapore. The cross-border e-commerce platform is known for selling trendy clothing at low prices. In April, a U.S. congressional commission accused the company's material sourcing supply chain of having links to the so-called forced labor in Xinjiang. Some of the American influencers say they joined this Xi'an-sponsored trip in order to address the rumors plaguing the company. And now, the amount of online hate targeting these people has been unprecedented. Let's put it in this way: with one influencer saying. She didn't even dare to go to Instagram one day. So joining us now on the line is、uh, Mr. Mario Cavallo, CEO of M Communications Group and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. Welcome back. Thank you, Ding Hong. Great to be back on the show, especially this topic. I love it. I'm familiar with it, and unfortunately, it's just more of the same old propaganda baloney. But let's talk more about it in detail. Go ahead and fire away with some questions. What was your initial reaction and initial thoughts when you read about the story? <clears throat> yeah, you know, unfortunately, more of the same、uh, excuses based on false allegations to demonize China. But before I continue on that point, because that that's an old, worn point, all of us keep repeating it.、Um, but more importantly, is this idea that there were influencers who went on a trip to learn more about、uh, about Shine and. I want to go back and mention back earlier in my career, many years ago, well, forty years ago or plus, when I was in the United States, I was working、uh, <clears throat> in marketing in the travel industry, which, of course, is a massive, multi-billion-dollar industry, and it's very common for all kinds of retail companies,、yeah. hotels, cruise lines, to organize familiarization trips. For their partners and for their clients. So, if you're a seller of a product, like if you're a, if you're a travel agent and you're selling Hilton hotels, it's very common for Hilton hotels to invite you on a familiarization trip to to, to see what what is this property that you're selling. And so, this is a very common thing for for people to do. Now it's called influencers, but it's basically just you know whoever your marketing partners are.、Um, They're、yeah. the ones who need to become more familiar with your with your product, and and that's what this trip was. There's nothing nefarious about it at all. Yeah, so that's a very important point to clarify. Actually, it's just a very normal business practice, right, on the part of Shine. So, do you think this idea about okay, there is forced labor in Xinjiang, there is genocide in Xinjiang, all kinds of human rights issues in Xinjiang, this idea 
has already become an, a sort of an entrenched idea in the public opinion in America, particularly particularly the American online community. Judging yeah. from the story, right. And the unfortunately,、uh, and I think that Twitter is the center of a lot of this garbage.、Uh, but but unfortunately, this is all just continued propagation of this old, debunked,、uh, rebuked. Uh, uh, propaganda, false allegation idea, and they they go with they, they go with genocide. They go with forced labor. Th- these things don't exist. It's just that simple. They literally don't exist.、Um, I was one. Of, I'm proud to say I was one of the very first people to show that. You know,、um, I had done the research, and I had put together and produced and shot a video about. The real situation of how Uyghurs in Xinjiang are thriving, for example, and in and in that video, I did it back in 2019 when this topic f- first came up.、Um, again, just as a way to demonize China, and so I was one of the very first to point out very clearly all the facts, which clearly, evidently demonstrate. You know, we want evidently observable information that is therefore obviously it's not opinion; it's just evidently observably true that these things are not happening. And I did that video, and then I was very happy that CGTN published CCTV published that video.、Um, so I was one of the first, and I appreciate that I was one of the first to debunk this nonsense. Yeah. So by the way, you know, when we talk about this company, this individual company, have you done any research about Xi'an? Do you think these、uh, forced labor-related allegation from U.S. lawmakers against this particular company? Is really, you know, backed and supported by real evidence. Well, I, I already answered that question, right? I mean, it's、uh-huh. not backed and supported by real evidence at all, because that's the point. The, the accusation, in and of itself, is just is designed to do nothing more than demonize and attack Shine.、Um, and Shine is a company that what is came up with a perfectly legal and innovative way to do business in a better way than previous. That that's what they're guilty of. And guess what? That's what Jeff Bezos's Amazon did, you know, a couple decades ago. They came out with a brilliant new way to distribute、uh, retail products to the American consumer. Now it hurts it, it hurts society and the economy in a lot of ways, but it was a brilliant new way, and it was perfectly legal and within the confines of the system and the the way it works, the infrastructure. Of, of distribution, supply, and logistics, and Shine figured out a better way to do it. So there's a modern-day Amazon,、uh, the new Amazon. But because they're Chinese, right? Then they, ha- you know,、uh, there's other companies as well who've done innovative things to to learn how to distribute、uh, more more efficiently and successfully, and at at, at、uh, better prices to the end customer, which is all good, right? Okay, but because they're a Chinese company, and only because they're a Chinese company, they've been targeted, and it's no different than the targeting of TikTok, which was also just a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. So, talking about the financial reports of Shine, I think the figure I collected、um, sometime last year is that it was worth around four hundred billion yuan or fifty-five billion U.S. dollars. By definition, it is a typical. Successful, you know, unicorn company, you know, basically、uh, set up for less than one decade, but is now valued at more than ten billion U.S. dollars. It has been very successful in this regard, and it is actually for a, a very important platform 
for many small and medium-sized um, uh, businesses based in China and elsewhere to sell their products. So, do you think um, um, we can make this argument that the success that Shine has enjoyed in recent years is one important reason, a very important reason behind why American lawmakers are targeting this company? Given the track record of past American regulatory practices against、um, a bunch of other successful Chinese tech companies, yeah, we can make that case, and actually, it's easy to make that case historically,、uh, going even past、uh, the idea that it's happening to Chinese tech companies. Well, it's happening to Chinese tech companies today because you know China's pulling ahead uh, uh, in terms of competition and market share and. Um, rising as rising as the new superpower, and that that's a threat to uh, uh, the Western、uh, position, the Western、uh, number one position, the United States number one position. And by the way, that's okay, that's understandable. I mean, if I was the top guy and someone was climbing strong, I, I'd try to knock him down too. So, I, to a degree, I, I get it, I understand it. But it go, but we can go all the way back to demonstrating that this is what the practice is. Not, it, it's just to destroy your competition.、Mm-hmm. It's not based on truth. And we go all the way back to Japan. You know, Japan back in the '70s and '80s, they were booming,、uh, and then the United States through the Plaza Accord, cracking down on Toshiba. Arresting uh, uh, you know, the Alstoms, the, the Alstrom story.、Um, I can't remember all the details right now. We don't have time to go into it, but it was all about knocking down and destroying the rising competition. It, that's exactly what this is. And again, it was just a few months ago they were doing it to TikTok. They're doing it to Huawei. This is the reality we're all living in,、uh, and it's、uh, going to continue. Mm. So I guess as an、um, influencer yourself, you have uh, a lot of uh, personal things to say to these、um, to say these、uh, fellow American fashion influencers and、uh, designers. But、um, unfortunately, that's all the time for our dialogue today. Mario Cavallo, CEO of M Communications Group and a senior fellow with the Center for China and Globalization. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. In France. Protests and unrest have erupted in the Paris region after police shot dead a teenager who failed to stop when ordered by traffic police officers. A video circulating on social media shows a police officer pointing a gun at the driver before a gunshot is heard. The car then crashes to a stop. This teenager is actually the second person this year in France to have been killed in a police shooting during a traffic stop. Last year, a record 13 people died in this way. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Susan Collard, senior lecturer in French politics and contemporary European studies at the University of Sussex. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi. So. 
We're、uh, seeing protesters and rioters throw rocks and fireworks at riot police,、um, and、uh, they are also setting cars on fire. A lot of violence we are witnessing right now. In your observation, why has this particular case of police shooting triggered this level of protests and unrest? What kind of、um, frustration on the on the part of people are we talking about here? Well,、um, this is just one incident、um, amongst many, as you've pointed out yourself. You know,、um, 13 people died last year.、Um, this is a kind of、um, uh, an ongoing problem with the police、um, and young people in the sort of、um, the suburbs, which are you know have higher rates of unemployment, high rates of immigrants, and so on.、Mm-hmm. And the police basically.、Um, In this incident, quite clearly, have、um, gone beyond what 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 their legal powers allow them to do.、Um, so there's a huge sense of injustice for a start.、Um, you know, as I understand it,、um, the car had been chased and it came to stop at the traffic lights, and then the police told it, them to get out of the car while it was stopped, and they didn't. They drove on. You know, just、yeah. as a sort of normal person, I think, why couldn't you shoot the tire to stop the car moving forward? You don't need to shoot the driver.、Yeah. Um, this is excessive、uh, behaviour on the part of the police, and because it's just one more example of this happening, that's why it's a it's a match to a tinderbox.、Um, mm. You know, it's just one one more time. Yeah. So farther back into the history. In one of the most、uh, infamous episodes in the Paris suburbs, we understand actually two teenagers running from the police officer were electrocuted back in the year 2005 when they were hiding in a sort of、um, electrical substation, and that、yeah. incident provoked weeks of violence across the country.、Yeah. So when we talk about police brutality. Uh, we could、um, we wouldn't usually think of the problem in 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 the United States of America compared to the situation in the U.S. Can you tell us more about the situation over there in France? Well,、um, it, it, maybe you kind of see that because you maybe the media shows the、um, American situation more often. But I can tell you that this is an ongoing、uh, problem in France now for many decades. And 2005 was kind of one of the worst examples because it led to so many weeks of problems and a state of emergency. You know, for several weeks was called,、um, and that is clearly what the government is very nervous about now: is that this could actually, you know,、um, devolve into something similar.、Um, but there's a long history of police brutality in France,、um, and it's、um, it, it's. Uh, it, it goes back a long way, and the problem is that the police in France are kind of quite、um, politicised. So we've had comments today from you know the far right、mm-hmm. um, saying that you know we need to、um, treat this police officer as being innocent before he's been found guilty. So clearly, kind of trying to um, uh, make excuses for him, which we can all see clearly what he's done is illegal. Um, so it's this history of police brutality which goes back a, a long way. I mean, the, in France, the police is the arm of the state.、Yeah. Um, in the UK, we don't think of our police as a, as a state 
um, force. But in France, that is the case. Um, and unfortunately, there are... Uh, we've seen it repeatedly, um, time and time again, we've seen that there are small groups of elements within the police force who um, are racist, who um, are, yeah. belong to the far right, essentially, and have um, a, a mindset which means that they're kind of trigger-happy uh, in this kind of situation, and that's what's now happened. Mm. So regardless of what the government saying that this is illegal, that the, the police officers are um, uh, being held at the moment, the anger is there because it's just such an injustice and because it's happened so many times before and nothing seems to stop it happening again. Yeah. So I guess in the meantime, some left-wing French lawmakers say this latest incident is yet more evidence that a 2017 law making it easier for police officers to shoot at uh, moving vehicles should be repealed or at least uh, revised. Uh, mm. Do you think they have a point? Very, very briefly. 30 seconds. Yeah, well, probably I don't know that law in great detail, but there is a difference in France between the police and the gendarme. And if you look at the figures for the impact of that law, the gendarmes have not... Um, carried out more shooting since then, but the police have. So it's a problem to do with the national police, not the gendarme or the municipal police, which are the other branches of police in France. So I think that that law, they, you know, will probably need to be looked at again now. But it's whatever the law says. What we can see here clearly, this police officer didn't respect the law. Yeah. So whatever you do to the law, it's the attitude uh, and the p- behavior of the, of the individual police officers themselves that need to be tackled. Yeah, your point's well taken, but that's Dr. Susan Collard, senior lecturer in French politics and contemporary European studies with the University of Sussex. Unfortunately, that's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Bye for now.